0: Scratch just beneath the surface in England, and you might find yourself staring at life as it was lived nearly 2,000 years ago. You can go down 18 inches and find numerous things like Roman villas, large, extensive buildings. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we explore the layers of history that are awaiting to be unearthed just beneath your feet in Britain. If it's a view you're after, you can now see detailed close-ups of what the Earth looks like from 250 miles up. Commander Chris Hadfield joins us to describe the perspective you get when you sightsee the Earth from the International Space Station.
1: You get a more humble sense of who you are, but also the great grace and privilege of seeing this place and the unique beauty of it,
0: the the inherent Christmas ornament-like gorgeousness of it. And listeners share their impressions from visiting the Holy Land. Look at the world from a whole new angle in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It turns out some of the greatest views on Earth are from 250 miles straight up. In a bit, astronaut Chris Hadfield tells us how he captured thousands of stunning images of our Earth's greatest features from a truly original perspective and how he dealt with the challenge of travel photography when the light and clouds aren't where you'd normally find them, the Earth is spinning below you, and you're flying at over 17,000 miles an hour. Later in the hour, we'll check in with listeners at 877-333-RICK. Let's hear your impressions from traveling to the Holy Land, including what it's like to be in Bethlehem at Christmas. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves holding fast to terra firma and just a little beneath the surface as well as we explore the historical marvels archaeologists can discover in England. Britain is a land of deep history, literally, and in many corners when you dig you can find something from a mysterious and ancient civilization just under the ground. In fact, they say if you scratch Gloucestershire, you'll find Rome. And I think if you scratch Rome in Britain, you'll find sites that are from an even earlier civilization. We're joined now by a historian and tour guide named Roy Nichols who lives in England, and he's going to talk about what they're digging up these days in his homeland. Roy Nichols, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to see you, Rick. So I love that saying, if you scratch Gloucestershire, you'll find Rome. Give us a little context. Where is Gloucestershire, and what does that mean? Gloucestershire is
2: west of London, uh, mm-hmm. one of the counties that is part of the Cotswolds. And the reason they say that, although in truth it applies all over England, is that this was a, a huge concentration of large Roman villas, large estates, very wealthy. And so the artifacts that are found are very, you know, commensurately well, uh, rich as well. And because of the the soil, it's very very shallow, and so you can go down eighteen inches and find numerous things like Roman villas, large, extensive buildings. Because of the soil, it's
0: very shallow. What do you mean?
2: You don't get large deposits of um, alluvial or topsoil accumulating. Oh, is that because there's that um, chalk underneath? Yes, that's right. The underlying rock is chalk, and often the the layer of topsoil Mm -hmm. is only going to be about 18
0: inches, 2 feet deep. Okay.
2: And often these will show up as grass marks or marks that you can see from aerial photographs.
0: So if you flew easily. over, you could kind of look at some odd features and realize, oh, there was something Roman. Oh, yes, underneath and the in fields. fact,
2: through the whole of Britain, um, mm-hmm. the development of flight and the development of aerial photography in the late uh, 1910s and 1920s uh-huh. really led to a huge leap in archaeological
0: investigation. So that's a real boon to the uh, discovery of yeah. the Roman civilization. And you could do a whole trip through Britain just on Roman sites. Oh, exactly. And something like one third of
2: Roman sites that um, are thought to exist have never been examined or even discovered. In Britain.
0: In Britain. And a lot of people don't realize it, but when the Romans came, there was already lots of stuff going on.
2: Well, people had been living in the British Isles for eight or 10,000 years prior to this.
0: Um, I mean, it is just fascinating, the ancient history. Of course, you've got the Stonehenge stuff and everything. And even Joseph of Arimathea, right? Arimathea, yes. Now, now, this is mind-blowing, but there is reason to believe that Joseph from biblical times, I mean from Jesus' time, actually traveled up to Britain. How on earth would they be able to uh, surmise that? Tin was an important,
2: uh, obviously, trading item. Um, One Mm -hmm. of the major sources of tin was the southwest of England. But it is thought Mediterranean people came to the southwest of England to trade in
0: tin. And who was and, Joseph of Arimathea? Well, he,
2: uh, he's said to be one of the, the followers of Jesus Christ. huh. Um, there's some controversy about who the, who the actual Joseph was.
0: One's, uh, but I mean, if you believe in the Holy Grail, what would be the, maybe far-fetched, but the, what would be the theory?
2: The Holy Grail uh, is the cup that was used at the Last Supper, and it's thought it contained the blood of Christ, and that it was lost and taken by Joseph of Arimathea to what became England, A few years after the death of Christ, who settled in what is called Somerset near Glastonbury, founded a very early simple church there, and the Holy
0: Grail is to be found somewhere within the Glastonbury area. In Glastonbury, it's not just a coincidence that this Holy Grail lore ends up in Glastonbury, because this is very spiritual for the uh, uh, pre-Roman, pre-Christian people uh, that uh, were there. There
2: was a writer called Lawrence Durrell who coined a phrase, spirit of place. And it refers to those places that, regardless of the religion or the way that people express their beliefs, have some mystical or ritual significance. And you'll find this in even places like Avebury and Stonehenge, or even where you've got prehistoric sites and then a later Christian church is built on the site, um, because there's something about that site that gives it something that's attractive to
0: people. So if you're a curious detective of a sightseer and you're looking at a church— What might you see in the church that would indicate that there was something holy and spiritual there before the church was on that spot? Well,
2: it's usually not actually within the church itself. If you look at a site, a Christian site, that is built on a mound, for instance, that's often indicative of a pagan site. Down close to where I live in in Dorset, there is a Norman church, in other words, in an 11th, 12th century building, Uh built inside a Neolithic henge monument. Now, this dates to about 4,500 B.C. There's a ditch and embankment that is is a ritual place or was a ritual place for the
0: Neolithic people. Now, would uh, that be a kind of religious imperialism? You choose to build your important building on top of the previous guys? Well, there's an
2: there's an element of that because when people are, all, say, you've got a new settlers coming into an area mm-hmm. and they see these large monuments in the landscape, then they want to associate themselves. They'll bury their own dead close to those places, those sites, but at the same time, I like to think that there is some sort of understanding and appreciation of earlier beliefs mm-hmm. um, that they want to associate themselves okay, with. Okay, so it's a
0: positive thing. Oh, yes. I think there is that element to it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Roy Nichols about digging up England. If you scratch England, you'll find Rome. If you scratch that, you'll find something even before that. And there's a lot of digging going on in England right now. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Mary-Jane's on the line in Santa Ynez, California. Mary-Jane, thanks for your call.
3: Hi, Rick. I'm a metal detector in California. When we visit England, uh, when we do home exchanges, we're there for about a month in the summer. Where in England could I go, do you think, to find some interesting small metal artifacts? Hmm.
2: Well, that's a very good question. Again, there are many rules and regulations, Mary-Jane, about, for starters, you need to have permission You can't just go on to any piece of land and metal detect. So you have to have the the landowner's permission and you have to be there legally. What I would do... Is is that a government protection or
0: the landowner's permission? Well, both. There
2: are national regulations about metal detecting. You certainly can't detect on ancient sites, protected sites, but even on private land. Mm -hmm. um, Right. And that's the the
3: same here in the US. I mean, that's just a common
4: courtesy as well.
2: What I would do, if you're coming to um, Britain for a holiday and you want to bring your equipment with you, contact one of the many, many local detecting clubs. They're all over England. They're all Mm -hmm. over Britain. Um, You can go online. I can't remember the email address um, or the URL, but I'm sure you can Google it and find it work out where you're going to stay, contact one of the local clubs, they'll have a club secretary, and they'll be more than happy to help you um, get the best out of your visit. And you could join the club,
0: join them on one of their um, expeditions. Excursions. Excursions sure. or Outings. expeditions. An outing. Yeah, an outing. Hey, Mary Jane, this reminds me, Roy and I have a friend, uh, a dear man who passed away recently, Arthur Smith, up in Scotland, in uh, Glencoe. And Arthur would, every time I'd come up there, he'd give me a Roman coin Mm. And I think, oh, Arthur, this is so precious, a 2,000-year-old Roman coin from Britannia. And he had told me they're actually quite common because he said in the old days, before people would go into some kind of a a town or something, they would bury their coins outside because there was a good chance they'd get ripped off when they went in. Consequently, to this day, (laughs) centuries later, you you can find these old caches of of coins if you have a metal detector.
2: Well, you don't even need to. A, A good time of the year to come is either the spring or the autumn when plowing is on. And if you're just walking across land, I, I go field browsing all the time, field walking. I'm, I'm often looking for pottery, Roman pottery, and other uh, older Neolithic pottery. But you'll often find odd fragments of metal I found, brooches, occasional coins. And as Rick says, they're very, very common in the Roman period, particularly smaller denomination coins like denarii. Roy, by
0: the way, while we're talking about uh, field browsing or whatever you call it, talk about beachcombing on the Thames in London at low tide.
2: Well, again, it's very restricted and very uh, controlled. And you do need a license on the banks of the River Thames. And you're you're not allowed to dig more than...
0: No, I'm not talking digging. I mean, I'm just talking walking through the pebbles and picking up pieces. Well, you still
2: need a license for that.
0: So I've broken the law.
2: Um, well, idle browsing, <laughs> but if you're doing it as a sort of concerted okay. project...
0: Well, what are you likely to find on the on the Thames? It can be
2: anything. It can be coins, it can be metal objects, it can
0: be bottles, it can be jars. Because I found all these little bits of pipes back in the old days when yes, we had clay pipes. Yes, the old pipes. clay tobacco pipes. Well, I understand they would smoke it and then toss it out the yeah. window and end in the river.
2: You know, rivers are a very, very good place because people are so casual and they lose things by accident. But whenever you're walking through the countryside, it's well worth keeping your eyes on the ground, Mm -hmm. um, particularly after a field has been plowed, because you'll be surprised what you
0: can find. Mary Jane, thanks for your call.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Good luck on your metal detecting.
3: (laughs) I
5: can't wait.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about digging up England. And and Roy, just to finish things off, I know Stonehenge has been closed for a while. It's reopened. What's new at Stonehenge? For many, many
2: years, there's been plans to change the visitor centers, which have been considered very poor at... um, Stonehenge, And the idea is to return the whole site to a more natural setting, rather than it being dominated by roads and by
0: car parks. Because be- before, when you stand at Stonehenge, which is what, four or 5,000 years old, this amazing majestic stone circle, you could hardly hear yourself think because the freeway was right there.
2: Yeah, there's a major road, two major roads close by, right. and they're
0: closing one of the roads, and we've already done so.
2: The visitor center is remote from the site itself, and then you're taken over to Stonehenge mm-hmm. itself to see Stonehenge as it should be in a much more natural
0: setting. So there's a new visitor center. It's away from the site. The setting seems more remote and, and detached, now exactly. more peaceful. Exactly. of course,
2: when it was built thousands of millennia ago, that's how it was meant to be. It was meant to be seen mm-hmm. in a wild landscape
0: and i understand they've discovered a new sort of twin henge or circle a wooden one or the remains well
2: we're beginning to realize that the whole of these landscapes around places like stonehenge and avebury and smaller sites are great what they call ritual landscapes Mm -hmm. it's not just one monument and one evolution of a monument it's a whole series of different monuments and this is an older a whole different features and uh Dating from thousands of years prior so there 's an to
0: ensemble of historic and spiritual sites altogether, yes from different ages and it 's changed
2: the perspective and the way that people express themselves.
0: one of the most fascinating days I remember is outside of Bath going to Avebury with a local tour guide who was a specialist in this stuff, and everywhere I looked, there were remnants of four or five thousand years ago, the people that predated the Romans in Britain
2: yes, from about four thousand BC with the beginning of the Neolithic You get a great monumentalization of the landscape when people start to build burial mounds, henge monuments, other monuments in the landscape, and really begin to dominate the landscape rather than being in and part of it.
0: Fascinating. Roy Nichols, thank you so much for giving us a look at Digging Up England.
2: My pleasure, Rick.
0: Listeners share their impressions with us from visiting Israel and Palestine in just a bit. Up next, Commander Chris Hadfield describes how being able to view Earth from the International Space Station provides an incredible perspective of life on Earth. And he talks about how he photographs scenic corners of the Earth from angles few of us have ever seen. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What would it be like to take a single photograph of the Nile River, one that you can show the entire thing from its source in Central Africa all the way to the delta on the Mediterranean? Or how might the way you view international politics change if you could get a good, clear view that included both Havana and Washington, D.C. in the same shot? Astronaut Chris Hadfield is one of the few people who've been able to enjoy these views of Earth from 250 miles up on the International Space Station. He was commander of Expedition No. 34 in 2012 and 2013, and he shares what working in space has taught him in his memoir. It's called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. Now, he's published his favorite photographs of Earth from the thousands of close-ups he took from the space station. They're featured in his newest book. It's called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. Chris Hadfield, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves.
1: It is my pleasure, Rick. Thanks. Thanks.
0: So you go around the world in ninety-two minutes. How long you were up in the space station for? What five months or something like that?
1: Yeah, if you do the math, it's like two thousand four hundred times around or something like that. A lot, of, a lot of around the world tours.
0: That is amazing. What drove you to become an astronaut?
1: I don't think "drove" is the right word. It's more like what pulled me to be an astronaut, and it was watching the first two people walk on the moon. I was, mm-hmm. I was a kid. I watched Neil and Buzz on the surface of the moon and that night walked outside right afterwards and looked up at the moon itself and it sort of just clicked in my mind that, mm. that impossible things can happen mm. and they happen when they just barely can and so it i just decided that night wow impossible things happen okay i want to do that how how do i do that and then it just became a pull or a draw through um the rest Mm -hmm. of my life uh, just helping me make decisions what i was going to do next and amazingly enough flew in space three times
0: but you're Canadian, aren't you?
1: Yeah, when, when, huh. when good point. When Neil and Buzz uh, walked on the moon, there was no Canadian astronaut program. But the, no one had walked on the moon before that morning either. It, yeah. it was like permission, you know. That's it, pretty it was gutsy. Like, uh, I mean, Canada was, didn't was...
0: even have a space program, and there you are, some <laughs> little
1: kid, and you go, "I can do that." Well, they were they were gutsy too, and it was it was immensely invitational, Rick. You know, it was like uh, when people really turn their minds to something, and where the technology just barely lets them, I love magnificent it. things can happen.
0: I was in. Um, Norway, when Neil and Buzz walked on the moon. I was just a little kid. I was just a teeny bopper. And what had occurred to me there was actually, I, I think in retrospect, pretty profound. It occurred to me, this is not an American, exclusively American accomplishment. This is a human accomplishment. And I think a lot of Americans might forget that.
1: Yeah, it was the original reality TV. It inspired hmm. billions of people. It changed the thinking of billions of people simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. There was never anything like it before. Yeah, it was a worldwide event.
0: Speaking of billions of people, you produced a video that really went viral on YouTube. It's uh, David Bowie's Space Odyssey as an astronaut.
1: Ground control to Major Tom Ground control to Major Tom Lock your Soyuz hatch and put
3: your helmet on
0: that is such yeah. a beautiful production. How did you do that? I mean, <laughs> did, you get, did you have to get permission to do that, both from NASA and from David Boy or his uh, his gang?
1: Well, it started just as a project with my son. My son said, hey, a lot of people, uh, we were emailing back and forth, and he was helping me with social media. He said, Dad, everybody's asking for Space Oddity. You've got to record Space Oddity. And I was like, why would I do that? The astronaut dies at the end. and Nobody covers Bowie. But he convinced me to do it, and I got him to rewrite the words, so the astronaut lived. I made a – just it was just a father-son remote project, like I was on a business trip somewhere, and we Uh were emailing stuff back and forth. But when I recorded the vocal to it, just like a karaoke thing with uh, with Bowie in one ear, the vocal sounded far more evocative than I expected it to. It sounded much more interesting than I thought it would – and it just grew from there. And I got a couple of friends on Earth to put the um, instrumentals underneath. And then my son weighed back in and said, it's got to be video. So then one Saturday yeah. for an hour or two, I, I went around and made the video. And then the Canadian Space Agency uh, helped get all the video together. But they gave it to my son, who then edited it into that um, final product. And, and it, I don't think it's billions yet, but it's no, it's but hundreds it's... of millions of people around the world have seen that video through rebroadcast. It's amazing.
0: You've had an impact with that video.
1: I thought about it afterwards, you know, Rick, because when I did it, it was just, you know, I'm a musician. I recorded right. lots of music up there. But I think it tied art to the science of what's going on. I, uh, people have trouble hmm. understanding a space station or the 200 scientific experiments on board. Huh. But when they saw the the iconic uh, music, uh, sort of the almost um, prescient music and, and very well-known tune by David Bowie, suddenly – in a new human place, yeah. in a, uh, kind of on a, on a oh, new yeah. place that we have built, it made it, I think, more real for people, or at least they understood it intuitively better, and it's just been amazing to see the reaction. <laughs>
0: I watched that, that video several times. I was just so enamored with it. And then I watched it once just looking at the practicalities. I mean, when you're singing, you had yourself anchored to the um, the closest thing, to terra firma up there, to the floor of the spaceship with your feet under kind of a bar. And I saw that. Then you'd let go of that. And I thought, okay, Commander Hadfield's <laughs> going to take off. And then you sent the guitar going end over end all the way across. And then you swam through the air and you grabbed it just before it would crash into the wall and then you'd mermaid yourself right out of sight into the next floor upstairs. <laughs> that was so graceful. It was balletic.
1: Yeah, your your verbs are all wrong, but they're very, very explan, explanatory. <laughs> um, because you don't need to swim, and you don't need to mermaid, and, and you don't float up. You are weightless. It's magic. You're Superman. You know, you can fly. The things that look magical are, are like some sort of bizarre, mesmerizing special effect. That's just that's the uh, way normal life.
0: Now, that's, that's the way it is. That relates to something I, I learned by reading your new book, You Are Here. The whole notion of which way is up. You know, in my work, I'm always working with people's ethnocentricity. You know, yeah. the, the British don't drive on the wrong side of the road. You're just looking at it right. from an American point of view. They drive on the other sure. side of the road, right? Now, you've got something that's related to that, but it's even more fundamental. It's that what is really up and what is really down, and You challenge people to enjoy this photograph that looks upside down to us and resisting the impulse to turn it over.
1: We want the world to look like a two-dimensional, north-up, clearly defined collection where each country is a different color. That's how everybody sees the world for whatever reason. And, of course, it doesn't look anything like that. (laughs) And and it's always orthogonal. You're always looking at – when you look at a piece of paper, it's a straight-on view. But when you're actually looking at the ball of the Earth itself, almost yeah. everything is on the oblique. It, it's at an angle, and so things are distorted, and, and north is never up. But I would send a picture to the ground, and immediately there'd be this hubbub on uh, on Twitter of saying, well, <laughs> you, you, you got the picture sideways, Scott, <laughs> as, if, uh, as if I was completely in the wrong, and it just made me laugh every time.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're, we're traveling beyond <laughs> and We're talking to Commander Chris Hadfield, who spent... Well, how many times do you, you went around the world uh, two thousand three hundred and thirty-six times in one hundred forty-six On days? On flight,
1: all, all told, uh, two thousand five hundred and ninety-three. <laughs> I think over the three space flights. <laughs> oh, you, know,
0: you show off! I haven't even been around the world <laughs> once, and you do it in you do it in ninety what ninety-two minutes. Now, 92 do, minutes. do you ever think that five hundred years ago, the five hundredth anniversary of Magellan sailing around the planet is coming up in just a few years? You make sixteen round trips in one day. Magellan spent a life... He died halfway through and it was still a success,
1: you know. Yeah. Some of his crew made it the whole way. Yeah. You think about that, actually, Rick, all the time. You look down... As you come across the Sahara, if you look right, you can see all the way down to the Great Rift and, and Lake Victoria. And if you look left, you can see all the way to Cairo and the Mediterranean. Mm. You can see the whole length of the Nile mm. just by sweeping your head left and <laughs> yeah. right. And when you think of the thousands of years of history along that river and the explorers and trying to find the source of the Nile, the Blue Nile and all that, and you you just move your chin and, and it's right there. And, yeah. and you cross the Atlantic in just just a few minutes. And the all-pervasive feeling of the historic struggles that have allowed us to understand Mm. our planet, they're right with you the whole time. You really see a global perspective, but with a huge respect for the history that got us where we are.
0: You talk about just how your perspective changes, you know, how how small we are, but but also just the slice in time, too, to kind of appreciate geological time as well as uh, how little we are in the big scheme of things.
1: The geology of the world... you know, we live in the little pockets of cities, and mm-hmm. and almost everybody lives in a city. So you forget the vast swaths of the world mm-hmm. that are are harder to live in, but that are mostly exposed rock or exposed sand or someplace it's really hard to build a septic system in a house. Yeah, and really. but those ones are the ones you're constantly looking at when you're in a spaceship. You see the huge. Barren swept rock that is on the edge of, of say the Sahara or mm-hmm. by the Gobi Desert as you're coming down out of the Himalayas or the empty quarter down on the on the peninsula. It's it's vast and it's surreal looking at when the old the sculpture is time and wind mm. and an immense dryness has turned it into shapes that are that are otherworldly. And that's most of what you see of the world is is the nature of it. And only occasionally do you see a pocket of uh, of a bunch of people living together. Oh,
0: man. And just to think of it as the sculptor is nature. Not Michelangelo, but nature. (laughs) (laughs) And Chris, you're talking about the the sweep of things. I I love the way you commented and you you proved it with a photograph, a beautiful photograph, that you can see Havana in Cuba and Washington, D.C. at the same time from, what are you, 250 miles up in the air?
1: Sometimes you get really enamored with something that's straight below you. But the beauty of the space station is we built this huge, big, bulging blister of a window. And so it's got a, a great big window that faces square down to the Earth like a glass-bottom boat. But it's got windows all around the side. And you need to remind yourself to raise your eyes to the horizon because yeah. that's when suddenly you can see from Havana all the way to D.C. or mm-hmm. or you see from the Yucatan all the way up to coast. You can follow the the San Andreas Fault its whole length just by tracing it with your eye. As you see so much of the world in just a careless glance.
0: Chris, in your book, you talked as a photographer about kind of getting all excited. The weather's going to be good and, and we're going to see the Nile way up at its source or are we going to check out Ayers Rock in, in Australia. If we get a glimpse of it, the weather's good, we're in the right track. And then you're going at 17,000 miles an hour, right? So if, if you don't <laughs> yeah. get it right, not only do you have to go around the world again, but you have to wait for the weather and the right trajectory and all that sort of stuff uh it must have been really fun for you to be aware of what's coming up and anticipating with your camera but then realizing if you blink you miss it uh, what's it like going 17000 I... miles an hour <laughs>
1: I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have a look at our ground track for the day. I'd look at where the 16 orbits, because the world turns underneath you. So every time you come around, it's it's a new part of the world. Mm-hmm. And I would look and see, oh, today we're going right smack dab over top of whatever, the Panama Canal. Everyone wants to get a picture of the Panama Canal on a sunny day because it's almost always cloudy somewhere there. And so I would wait. And I'd come around and I'd set my alarm on my wristwatch And so somewhere about Hawaii, you'd you'd go ripping over to the window and you'd get the camera and be looking and you'd come down crossing um, Central America and you look ahead and you go, oh, it's cloudy again. And and then so you'd wait another week. But we've been living on the space station for um, 14 years and the beauty of being up there for months and months at a time is you can say, oh, I didn't get it today, but I'll get it next month when, when, when things line up right
0: Chris, when you were taking these beautiful photographs that fill your book, who owns these photographs? Does NASA just let you take the f- photographs and do with them what you like? What kind of legalities we, we all, are there?
1: We all own those photographs. They, they belong to everybody. And that's, in fact, my wife and my profit from the book all goes to uh, to charity because those pictures belong to everybody.
0: Is that because you're a nice guy, or is that because no, that's no re- requirement?
1: Uh, I, no, I was a government employee using government equipment on government okay. time. But in truth, they ought to belong to everybody. Imagine if you know those pictures that the guys on the way back from the moon, where they saw the whole globe yeah. for the first time. That's not a personal photo. That's a photo for every person oh, that exists. I like and, this book even more. There's no more. difference.
0: I just suddenly <laughs> like this book even more. This is beautiful. <laughs> even before Chris Hadfield's video of Space Oddity went viral on the internet. He was a member of an all-astronaut rock and roll band. He's got dozens of space videos up on his own YouTube channel. And even the airport in his hometown of Sarnia in Ontario is named after him. Colonel Hadfield's book of Earth close-ups from the International Space Station is called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. It's published by Little Brown and Company. Now, the title of your other book is The Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, and then the subtitle is what going to space taught me about ingenuity, determination, and being prepared for anything. Of course, you can look out that beautiful window and enjoy the view and ponder the world, but this other book deals with something even broader. Talk about the value of going to space from just being back on Earth and and better understanding life.
1: In order to do something as complex and as challenging and as right on the edge of, of our capability but also as dangerous as flying in space, You can't just do that using regular ideas and regular behaviors and regular ways of dealing with stuff. You kind of need to exaggerate and change how you do things. I observed over the 20 years, especially speaking in schools and to groups over those 20 years, I observed that the things that we have had to learn how to change have practical application for everybody. How do you separate danger and fear? How do you prepare for something that is one chance only and optimize your chances of success how do you do all that stuff and so the purpose of that book was really to be useful to try and tell some space stories but use them really to let people maybe pick out some behaviors or ideas for themselves that might help them then face life on earth more successfully
0: Wow! so it it occurs to me this is a travel show on the radio and we're talking to one of the ultimate travelers a man who's uh, lived in the space station And just like travel on Earth gives you different perspective, traveling over Earth gives you even more of a different perspective, and then when you get back down into the rest of your life, you've got skills that you learn from that travel that can help you live better.
1: I think it gives you not just the visual perspective, but visual perspective is important, of course. I think it helps you appreciate the, Mm -hmm. the finer points of everything that you look at, but also more of a, a temporal perspective, a perspective of time, a, a perspective of distance, uh, maybe an increased feeling of contentment. And oddly enough, Rick, to go around the world a hundred times, it increases your optimism. You see the world for what it truly is, the immensity of it and the age of it and the patience of it and then mm-hmm. the inherent beauty of it. And it pulls away your focus from the, the little nitnoy day-to-day stuff that's going on in your household, on your mm-hmm. street or in your your little town or whatever, which of course is important, but it's often blown way out of importance. And travel um, helps, I think, settle things into their proper settings. And and the amount of travel that that we do on the space station, suddenly you see the whole world that way as as one place with all of us uh, together on it. And you come back with a great sense of calm and optimism about the future of the whole thing together.
0: You see things in a more true perspective. In an honest
1: perspective, not as distorted by a television camera or, a, or an excited reporter right. or, or a transient impression of it. And that was really the motivation in my second book. Yeah, you know, I took 45,000 pictures mm-hmm. and I, tr- I tried to choose the 190 that just showed the world without telling people what to think. Just say, this is actually how varied and interesting and magnificent and mm. ugly and beautiful and, and complete our world is and think about it. And where you are is just a part of that one long joined continuum.
0: Again, we've been talking with Commander Chris Hadfield. His book is An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. And his new book is You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes, amazing collection of photographs from the International Space Station. Chris Hadfield, thanks so much for joining us, and happy travels. Same to you, Rick. When you view the Earth from a distance, the world's perennial conflict zones might start to look small. I've never had the chance to look down from space, but I've traveled to a few places that people warn you about, usually only to find generous people, warm people, welcoming people who want to be your friend. Let's hear about your experiences in a tiny bit of the world we call the Holy Land. We'll take your calls about visiting Israel and its neighbors next at 877-333-RICK. When people talk about the Middle East, most of the time it's to report on yet another horrible incident and the complicated, long-standing conflicts that threaten to never be resolved. We're setting aside the headlines about the region now for just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves, and instead, I want to check in with listeners who have actually traveled there, people who have reports on their impressions that they can share with us, experiences they had visiting the Holy Land on their own. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. By email... We're at radio at ricksteves.com. Alan's calling in from Grand Rapids in Michigan. Hi, Alan. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. What is your experience in the Holy Land?
3: Interestingly, uh, my first time there was I did it on my own. My uh, son had been on an internship there, actually working on what's called the Jesus Trail. Mm -hmm. That internship's still available, by the way, for other college students that might be interested. So he and I and my daughter decided to go through Israel on our own, which I think is sort of a, a back door way if you want to think of it that way. And uh we had a great time. This uh Jesus Trail was actually started by a Christian and a Jew who decided to stake out where they thought Jesus had walked and they're they're still working together and uh I'd highly recommend people who wanna go there on their own to To start with that, it starts in Nazareth and goes up through Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee. So we had a great time.
0: When we think about the Jesus Trail, we should remember um, Israel is uh, pretty compact. I mean, it's, what, about 40 miles across and uh, Mm -hmm. maybe 100 miles from north to south. And while Jesus was um, born in the little town of Bethlehem and and crucified on Calvary Hill in Jerusalem— He did his three years of ministry uh, in the north end of Israel, all around the Sea of Galilee. And when you go up to Galilee, it's just like um, every Bible story you'd ever remembered is up there. And uh, if there's ever a traffic jam of tour buses in Israel, it's going to be in that area around the, the Bible sites around the Sea of Galilee. That, it seems, is where most of those sites are. Was that your experience?
3: Uh, yes. In fact, when we'd get to the site like Capernaum, we'd see all the buses. But uh, we walk to much of the trail, and then you're you're kind of seeing it as it was back in the day, if you want to think of it that way, because the trail's pretty out in the back country. It's yeah, You're in the middle of nowhere, kind of living off the land, going into the city to buy food, and it's not commercialized
0: at all. Now that sounds like a much better way to do it. I remember traveling across Israel, looking out at the vast expanse, and seeing these trails and these little lanes going across the the arid countryside and it it almost looked like Abraham or Jesus or Mohammed themselves could have walked those trails and uh, I imagine that's a lot what the Jesus Trail is like when you actually hike it
3: yes uh, I would say so for those that are interested there is a website jesustrail.com and a great book called uh, Hiking the Jesus Trail by Jim Landis uh, just get out in the country and get to understand the people. That's that's part of his book, too.
0: So uh, You know, I was raised a Christian, and I'm still a Christian, and uh, it's hard for me to, uh, when I'm reading the Bible here in the United States, to kind of get into the whole, you know, scene. But when you're sitting there on the Sea of Galilee, and you can read the Bible, or in fact, for me, it was my Jewish guide reading the Bible. There's something amazing about having uh, an Israeli read the Bible to you right there in the Sea of Galilee, and you look right above you, and you see that's where the Sermon on the Mount was given.
3: Yeah. In fact, I, I had an interesting verse that popped into my mind. We were walking to Capernaum, because you can walk quite a bit and instead of taking tour buses. And uh, there's a verse someplace in the Bible that says, And as the disciples were walking on the way to Capernaum, they argued who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I thought, that happened right here, <laughs> right where we're walking. It's... So it just brought it to life.
0: You know, there's there's quite a lot there to meditate on or, or, or just to consider. Things survive in, in Israel the, from the ancient times, and, and those settings, they still have that sort of special atmosphere today. What were the highlights for you, if you were to have a checklist of places to be sure to go, whether you're hiking or whether you're uh, going to be on a road trip with a car?
3: Well, there's the usual, you know, Jerusalem and the the holy places there, but the the ones that stuck out especially new, you might say, things I wasn't expecting, was one was the Pori, sometimes called Sephora, which is four miles from Nazareth, which was the Roman capital at the time. And you can still see the Roman chariot ruts in the streets there. You can say, boy, this is this is where Jesus probably walked, or his dad walked, doing carpentry work. It's a well-preserved city, ruins there. So that was kind of interesting, and there's there's lots of mosaics on the floor still there. Another one that stood out for us was En Gedi, where both Christians and Jews believe that David hid out from Saul. And you can see the caves where they would have hid out. It makes perfect sense. And even there, we ran into a flock of wild goats. And I remember that it said in the Old Testament, uh, David hid out at En Gedi where the wild goats are. So here yeah. it is, what, 3,000 years later, and they're still there.
0: And there's uh, these Bedouin uh, herders that are out in the middle of nowhere, and they just feel like they're right out of biblical times. There's so much to see. What was your experience with uh, Hezekiah's Tunnel? Can you describe that to me?
3: Yeah, Hezekiah's Tunnel, we had heard about it from somebody else, and it's uh, right there in Jerusalem. What I really enjoyed about it is it's exactly the way it was 2700 years ago there's no lighting there's no extra you pay a little fee to get down there once you're down there you're on your own so you wear flip-flops you take a little pen light or something you don't need a lot of light you get down in there and there's you can read the old testament about how they built it but in any case there's this stream flowing through there it goes over your ankles and you're in pitch dark until you turn on your light so you Put your flip-flops on, and you walk a third of a mile down this tunnel that was chiseled way back when they had to use chisels. Wow. And, man, you could just feel yourself being brought back to the time when these people were building that tunnel.
0: Was and, that part you know, of an irrigation, uh, a, a way to move water, or was that just for, for people to use?
3: Uh, actually, the reason it was built was, Back then, Hezekiah didn't want the Gihon Spring would flow out through the walls into the valley, which meant your enemies can get water. Well, uh, you want the water, not your enemies to have water. Right. So he decided the only way to keep the water inside the walls was to build this tunnel to divert it to within the city. Gotcha. And then the tunnel diverted the water and eventually ended up in the Pool of Siloam, which has also been discovered in the last 20 years.
0: And water is a bone of contention 2,000 years later.
3: Oh, Yeah. At least this one, you don't get any any problem. You can go down there and just have a ball. I'm sure kids and teenagers, well, I'm a kid at heart, uh, would just love it.
0: Hey, Ellen, did you go into the West Bank at all on your trip? Yes, we did. Was your feeling that you can travel there pretty comfortably, or how did you feel going across the wall?
3: Yeah, we felt comfortable as Americans. I always felt like they kind of look out. They don't want any trouble with Americans either side, and so... Yeah, the the Israelis were checked over, and the Palestinians who want to go the other way were checked over, but they see that American passport, and no problem.
0: That was my experience, too. I didn't
3: feel insecure. We we were actually in Bethlehem on, probably not a good idea, but on Christmas Day, and Mm. so... We were in masses of Palestinians, and we didn't feel unsafe.
0: Right. I think it's a real shame when you consider how many Christians go over there on Christian tourism trips, and all they do is make a beeline into Bethlehem and then scamper back into Israel and say a prayer of thanks that they survived it, when actually there's so much to see and do and so many great people to meet in the West Bank.
3: Oh, yeah, I, I'd agree. Uh, we, yeah. That's why we like to walk all that's over. And, and nothing wrong with tour buses, but that's just not for us.
0: All right. Alan, thanks so much for your call. Okay, thanks, Rick. Take care. We're hearing your impressions about visiting the Holy Land right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can join in our discussion by posting to our online listeners radio forum. Go to the radio section of ricksteves.com, look for the link, and find where it says participate in the show. Peter in Chino, California, sends us this email about his trip to Lebanon. Two years ago, I was fortunate to travel outside my comfort zone to Lebanon for an academic conference. The week I spent in Beirut and in Lebanon was the most rewarding travel experience of my life. I not only got out of my European comfort zone, I was able to meet and engage with individuals quite like myself, but in a world far away from California. Visiting the Roman ruins of Baalbek was a humbling experience especially when the residual sounds of mortar fire from Syria resonated from just over the border. Now, with open eyes, I see the Middle East from a completely different perspective, one of empathy and sadness. That was a thoughtful email from Peter in Chino, California. Thanks, Peter. Artie's on the phone in Palm Harbor, Florida. What are your thoughts on the Holy Land lately?
5: Well, you know, um, my wife and I were there in 77, and um, I was a Christian... And she was a Jew, a Jew, and I didn't see the big separation of that until we were actually there. And then when I came back, learned so much more about it. And then we had two girls, and in uh, 2008, they went on uh, what was called the birthright with, from their colleges. And they came back with their own perspective. And it's just amazing how our family can endlessly talk about it, you know, and how hard it is to realize that over there, They don't live in peace, and and they don't you know, even though the girls saw it as a melting pot and they saw it as a a place where changes have to be made and peace could be achieved, we know here that that it's not happening. I talked to both of them today, and and they both still say the same thing, you know, peace
0: has to be achieved. Peace has to be achieved. Now, Artie, your daughters are Jewish-American girls, and they took advantage of the birthright program in Israel. What is the birthright program?
5: program that takes them on uh, like a two-week excursion, where they are in a group of about 40 or 50 college students, also of Jewish descent, and they get to go there, and they go to all these different places, like Masada and the Wailing Wall, and, and they just go all over the place, down to the Dead Sea and Negev and in the desert with the Bedouins and spend the night in the Bedouin tents and they learn so much, and, and these were just you know young, open minds
0: so th- what what to did see this. What impressions did they take home, Artie, when they had that two-week Israeli-guided experience? How did that change their impressions, and, and what was their attitude and, and their mood about it all when they came home?
5: They say the same thing, that there needs to be peace. The youth tells me that the other youth in Israel said the same thing. We want to see peace. If we have to change the borders or the laws and make changes on both sides, we have to have peace.
0: You know, Artie, I've been studying this for a year. I'm certainly no scholar about it, but it's been fascinating and fun to be steep on the learning curve. And it is such a complicated and many-faceted and just amazing challenge. And to go there firsthand and experience it and talk to people like your daughters did, it's a powerful experience. Uh, Thank you for uh, sharing the experience of your girls, and uh, I'm glad they had a chance to take advantage of that birthright program. Well, thank you, Rick. Okay, take care. Bye now. And Joe's calling from Seattle. Joe, thanks for your call.
4: You're quite welcome. Pleasure.
0: Yeah. What's your experience in the Holy Land?
4: Just last year, I spent uh, 30 days. I spent a month in the Holy Land, uh, mostly in West Bank of Palestine.
0: Wow, a month and mostly in West Bank. Most people go and stay in Israel and then make a little quick side trip into the West Bank. What was your experience in the West Bank?
4: I had an absolutely wonderful experience, and, and my exploration covered all the way from the north in Janine, down through Sebastia, Ramallah, Nablus, Taipei... Bethlehem, and even Hebron in the South. So um, I got a real good sense of the goings-on in uh, the West Bank. It was not uh, your typical fun vacation, um, but it was definitely a, a learning experience. I went to bear witness and learn a little bit more about the West Bank.
0: Wow. When you say went to bear witness, Joe, what do you mean?
4: That is a term that's used for, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm Christian myself, and um, for years I've been puzzled by a lot of the struggle in the Middle East, a lot of the violence in the Middle East. Why is it there? Why does it exist? Why does it perpetuate? And bearing witness is just that, trying to go with an open heart, with an open mind, and seeing for yourself the realities, and and then bringing some of that knowledge back home and and sharing with family and friends and loved ones. When I talk about this issue, I don't talk about religion at all. I don't talk about Judaism or Christianity or, or Islam. I talk about rights, human rights. And that's, that's how I frame the issue.
0: I found that the people there might have identified themselves with the Muslim community or the Jewish community, but a lot of times that was more cultural than religious. I would agree. So what, what did you experience? Talk about, uh, well, I'm just fascinated by these places that you went. Most people would be going, what? He went <laughs> to Janine? He went to Nablus. I mean, these are hotbeds the of terrorism, you know? Uh, what <laughs> was it like?
4: It was easy for me to get around. I was I got around um, sometimes on public transportation. It's not easy. You have to go through checkpoints, um, and it took some time. But just wonderful sites throughout. Uh, Janine was beautiful. It's where most of the olive groves are. There's a wonderful um, nonprofit organization called Canaan Fair Trade. That it's like visiting a winery. You visit, and they they can pick and harvest and process. Palestinian olive oil there. You could find it here locally in Seattle and some of our, our markets. And then south of that was Sebastia, which uh, not many people ventured to Sebastia, but it was absolutely amazing. It had, over time, it's seen six different civilizations over the past 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. And, and today there's still a lot of Roman and Ottoman ruins that are in fairly good shape to see. Mm-hmm. And what struck me there was it was just stunning, just beautiful flowers. I was in there the month of May. Flowers were everywhere.
0: What was your experience in Ramallah? To me, that was the only place where you had a sort of a cosmopolitan vibe.
4: Cosmopolitan, yes. Very good sweets to eat, yes. A Christian feel, yes. And I was I was making my way more quickly through the Christian parts um, so I could explore more of the Palestinian areas. And what I do know about Ramallah is not too far outside of Ramallah was the small Christian town of Taibe. Oh, yeah. It's a Christian town, but it also has a brewery. It's it's Palestine's only brewery. (laughs) It's a wonderful place to visit. They do tours, and they even have their own Oktoberfest. And I I hope someday I get to go back for olive harvest and to visit during Oktoberfest.
0: You know, I felt like the uh, Christian community was a little bit embattled and shrinking, but there are still a lot of movers and shakers in Palestinian society who are Christian. The minister of tourism is Christian. The mayor of Bethlehem and the mayor of Ramallah, I understand, have to be Christian according to their constitution. And, uh, of course, Taybeh, T-A-Y-B-E-H, is famous for its uh, Christian community, and also it's the only brewery in the country. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you were in uh, Bethlehem also, and uh, to me, Bethlehem was a fascinating place. Tell us about your experience in Bethlehem.
4: I absolutely loved Bethlehem. I spent quite a considerable amount of time in Bethlehem. Of course, a lot of um, visitors, no matter what uh, religion, many go to Bethlehem on any visit. That includes uh, Israel and Palestine, and you have all the various sites to see, the Nativity Church, and so on. And so, of course, I, I visited all of those sites. I, I had fun thinking about my family and my mom a lot, since you know we grew up in the Catholic upbringing, and it was it's it's all there. But you know what else I did? I you know when I travel, I like to be with people, and I like to I was there to try to get to know people and get to know a people that aren't talked about much in the U.S. Uh, media. And so I signed up and ran a little 5K run in Westland. <laughs> really? And it was it was a lot of fun.
0: Huh.
4: Um, I I was probably one of maybe four or five Westerners that signed up, but uh, I did it. I was making friends the whole time, even before the starting whistle blew. You know, easy easy run to do 5K, but quite haunting. You know, I'm now in the middle of another 4,000 new friends that I just made, and we're jogging past the separation wall.
0: 4,000 people running in Bethlehem? Uh, yeah. Oh, that must have been a very uh, <laughs> positive a positive and, and uplifting it, experience it, instead of a it demonstration. Was it was
4: amazing. We had people, you know, singing and the band playing at the starting line. Hmm. But like I said, it, it was an interesting little 5K jog when mm-hmm. you're jogging past the separation wall and all the banksy uh, graffiti on the wall and uh, very, very menacing uh, checkpoints and guard towers. Um, it, not your typical 5K.
0: There's a feeling in the West Bank that violence is not the answer. And I, I, I do think that they've learned, you know, from the past that, you know, it's just not going to work to resort to violence. And it, to me, there's a hopefulness and a positive spirit. And to run with 4,000 Palestinians in a, in a little mini marathon in Bethlehem, past Banksy Street Art and past that wall and under those checkpoints, must have really been a lot of fun. It was. <laughs> Did you by chance meet uh, Pastor Mitri Raheb? No, I did not. He's the, the Lutheran pastor at the Bethlehem Christmas Church there. He's got a basketball league where the Muslims and the Christians play together, and he's got all sorts of sports stuff going on and cultural stuff uh-huh. going on. But there's a lot like, happening in Palestine, and, and I just think it's so important that when people are lucky enough to go to the Holy Land that they balance the experience. Israel's a wonderful experience and take advantage of the opportunity to cross that wall and enjoy a little bit of travel in the West Bank. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for your call. You're quite welcome. Take care now. Bye.
5: Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. And thanks for studio help this week to OPB Portland. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. It's updated each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. See you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe
2: researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn
0: more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.